0: listening to Impacted the University of Sussex podcast series about research for real change Welcome to Impacted the podcast series about research for real change Each episode showcases researchers here at the University of Sussex and considers the impact that their work is having in the world My name's Will Hood
1: and I'm Suzanne Fisher-Murray
0: and today's guest is the neuroscientist Anil Seth. Anil is a professor of cognitive and computational neuroscience within the Department of Informatics here at the University of Sussex as well as co-director for the Sackler Center for Consciousness Science.
1: Anil's research draws together work from the fields of psychology, psychiatry, Neurology, philosophy, computer science, artificial intelligence, physics and mathematics to determine the biological basis of conscious experience. So Anil, perhaps we can start with an explanation of what your research is concerned with. What does it mean to be a cognitive and computational neuroscientist?
2: It's a bit of a long-winded title, that's, that's for sure. Really what I'm interested in and the research that we've been doing at Sussex for the last 10 years or so has been about one of the oldest problems in the book and that's the problem of understanding how consciousness happens this is one of the things people have been thinking about since they've been thinking about anything why are the lights on at all why do we have subjective experiences why aren't we just roaming around the world with without any experience at all like a like a zombie um, this has been for the longest time the province of philosophy maybe theology But it's also one of the central questions in psychology and neuroscience and in the sciences generally. How come this collection of nearly 90 billion neurons inside our brains gives rise to this rich inner universe of colours, shapes, feelings and also of the sense of self? These are very large esoteric questions that you're asking. When did you feel that you needed
0: to find answers to these things?
2: I remember always been interested in, in consciousness. It's one of those topics that you talk about with your friends at school, maybe in the pub when you're an undergraduate. But to be honest, at that point it never occurred to me that I would be able to pursue this interest as, as, a, as a career. Even when I was doing psychology as an undergrad in, in Cambridge in the 90s, consciousness was not on the table at all. It was considered something outside of, of the remit of the natural sciences. But I was just, um, I think a mixture of being slightly obstinate and being quite lucky. I just kept trying to find uh, a way to at least tangentially address the question. So after psychology, I came to Sussex because it was a place where traditional disciplinary boundaries uh, didn't seem to hold and were actively challenged in the structure of the university. So I thought this would be a great place to come to learn more about cognitive science and the brain. At the same time, things were changing in academia more generally, and the prospects for a neuroscience of consciousness were becoming a bit more legitimate again. So by the time uh, that I started a faculty position here uh, in 2006, consciousness science was still fringe, but also fundable. And as soon as you can get a grant for something, you can start to do it. And that's really what happened.
0: So the Sackler Centre, I get the sense from reading about your work that you have so many things going on that the Sackler Centre acts as a central hub by which to facilitate all of these different projects. Perhaps you could tell me a little bit about this and the function that the Sackler Centre serves.
2: Yeah, that's right. The Sackler Centre has been the, the main instrument through which we integrate the various different projects that we're doing in consciousness science. And it started in 2009. Uh, We got the first small grant from from the Sackler Foundation. And we had a contact with the foundation. And we were able to make the case that studying consciousness could bring a new and valuable angle to the development of new approaches in psychiatry. So this bid was successful and it funded, in the first instance, just a very small Number of postdocs for three years, and then we've we've grown over the years, but the mission has remained the same: that we want to jointly pursue a basic understanding of how consciousness happens, with its clinical application and translation, mainly, but not exclusively, in, in psychiatry. So the Sackler Center it's not a building; it's a virtual center, but it does provide this this means of coordination and integration and shared resources uh, that we can pursue these common questions.
1: The sheer range of Anil's public science communications work is impressive. This is a clip of him answering neuroscience questions sent to him on Twitter as part of an online Wired video feed. When you
2: dream, you dream of things that you've seen and thought about and all that. So my question is, do blind people dream? And if so, how? Good question. Yes, blind people dream. Everybody dreams. In fact, it's not only humans that dreams. Pretty much every animal with a brain, at least with this kind of cortex, dreams. And nobody really quite knows what dreams are for. One idea is that when we perceive the world around us, we have to use these very, very complex models inside our head about what's out there in the world so we can interpret all the sensory data that's coming in. And when we dream, we're basically sharpening and improving those models so that they work better.
1: He helped conceive of and consulted on the BBC radio play, The Sky is Wider, which won the best BBC audio drama in 2017. And he's even starred as one of nine scientists in a recent Netflix feature documentary called The Most Unknown.
2: And you're, so you're a physicist? Yes, yes. I'm a physicist. I build instrumentations. That's why I'm curious about how you interface with the brain. How do you map of the brain. uh. We have a very interdisciplinary lab. In our lab we do, we've got physicists, but then we have people doing brain imaging, um, using functional magnetic resonance imaging, and and EEG, and then we have a a virtual reality lab too as well. So we use emerging VR techniques to manipulate people's experience of the world and, and of themselves. In my lab, we've got all sorts of people working together to get at this problem, this basic problem of how consciousness happens. Anil has approached public engagement
0: in many ways over the last few years. But one of his most popular media pieces is the 2017 TED Talk, which to date has been watched by nearly 7 million people.
2: Within each of our brains, the combined activity of many billions of neurons, each one, a tiny biological machine, is generating a conscious experience. And not just any conscious experience, your conscious experience right here and right now. How does this happen?
0: Your TED Talk entitled, Your Brain Hallucinates Your Conscious Reality. Are you able to explain to us or or summarize in some meaningful way that we can grasp um, what you mean by this idea that conscious reality is a hallucination?
2: I'll try. So what I'm not saying is that reality doesn't exist and it's all in our heads and nothing is real. What I'm saying is something about the relationship between our perceptions and what's actually there. And... I suppose the easiest way to, to get at it is if we just reflect superficially on our experience, it's easy to think there's a world out there that has objects which have properties like colors, shapes, and so on. And we information about this real world is transmitted through our to us through our sensory organs. And there's some sort of something inside, maybe it's the self inside our head, which reads out this sensory information so that if there's a red chair in the corner of the room. I perceive a red chair somewhere in my mind. What I think is it's really the other way around, that we project out. So sensory data isn't red, it doesn't come with labels on. The brain's always trying to make sense of an ambiguous flurry of electrical impulses, which are themselves colorless, soundless, and shapeless. Uh, It's trying to infer what the causes of these signals might be in the world. And that's really what our perceptions consist in. It's the brain's best guess of what caused the sensory signals that we encounter. Now, imagine being a brain. You're locked inside a bony skull trying to figure what's out there in the world. There's no lights inside the skull, there's no sound either. All you've got to go on are streams of electrical impulses which are only indirectly related to things in the world, whatever they may be. So perception, figuring out what's there, has to be a process of informed guesswork in which the brain combines these sensory signals the brain doesn't hear sound or see light. What we perceive is its best guess of what's out there in the world. Have a listen to this.
3: I think was really terrible,
2: are you? Sounded strange, right? Have a listen again and see if you can get anything.
3: I think was really terrible, are you?
2: Still strange. Now listen to this. I think Brexit is a really terrible idea. <laughs> which I do. Um, so you heard some words there, right? Now listen to the first sound again. I'm just going to replay it. OK, so what's going on here is, is the, the remarkable thing is the sensory information coming into the brain hasn't changed at all. All that's changed is your brain's best guess of the causes of that sensory information, and that changes what you consciously hear. If hallucination is a kind of uncontrolled perception, then perception right here and right now is also a kind of hallucination, but a controlled hallucination in which the brain's predictions are being reined in by sensory information from the world. In fact, we're all hallucinating all the time, including right now. It's just that when we agree about our hallucinations, we call that reality. The ultimate endpoint of this is to realize that this applies also to the self. The self isn't this thing in the head that does the perceiving, the self is also a perception. The experience of being me is constructed by the same principles as is the experience of seeing you across the room or seeing a red chair in the corner, seeing a, a clear blue sky. And it's at this point that things get quite really challenging and really interesting. Because it seems to me that the self is this unified, continuous thing that's probably existed since I was born and will go on in some form until I die. But thinking of things this way, you realize that the self is always reconstructing itself. It's quite fragile. It can come apart in various ways, as we see in medicine and psychiatry and dementia and old age. So there is something precious about the experience of being you or being me, because it's always being generated um, again through predictions about sensory signals. But in this case, the sensory signals are not the ones coming from across the room. They're coming from the body, from the outside of the body and from the inside of the body.
1: So just moving on to kind of impact and measuring the impact of um, outreach or public engagement work. You are a Welcome Trust Engagement Fellow. Uh, you said in, in an article on the website that you took the, the fellowship part-time, um, I believe 40% of your time. What did the Wellcome Trust Fellowship involve? Can you describe how that transformed things for you? What role did the trust play in sort of changing the course of your professional life?
2: And the Wellcome Trust has... It's, the Wellcome Trust is pretty unique in that uh, it's a biomedical charity, one of the the country's largest, but written into its constitution was... Something like public engagement and art science communication, not just pure science so it's it's there in the constitution of the of the welcome trust it's something they they're obliged to do which is really which is really great actually and it means that their support for these kinds of activities is is just baked in and has a long history and so when I learned about the fellowship program i thought well this is this is great because it's a way that I can actually devote more time to public engagement because they will uh, buy me out of some other duties, to, to be blunt. It turned out, I assumed that the fellowship program was there to support people like me, scientists who wanted to do more public engagement and needed the time and resource to do it. But actually, it turned out to be mainly for public engagement professionals for whom that was all they were doing. And it would support them for a, a, two years full time to enhance their practice and and. and about a step change in their practice and career so i was trying to do something actually quite different and it's i'm delighted that they they supported uh, what i wanted to do which in a way was sort of a little bit less ambitious than many of the other people in the program because i wanted to continue my primary objective was to continue running the lab continue doing research and made it pretty clear that public engagement although it's important it's certainly of secondary importance to the other things I'm doing. And, and I really want to make that that clear because there has to be a space to be able to be interested and engaged with these engagement activities without pretending that it's somehow all and the only thing you're doing, because otherwise you won't get other scientists doing it. And so the Welcome were were open to this. And so with the fellowship, it has bought me some time through a reduction in in teaching duties. Um, to continue doing the public engagement and and do a bit more of it and think about it more strategically um, than I would have otherwise been able to do. And it's also plugged me more directly into this network of other public engagement practitioners to learn more about what uh, people who do public engagement full-time, what do they do, um, how it's turned out for other people who have engagement as a prominent part of their career, and being part of that community has also been something extremely valuable.
1: As well as being a Welcome Trust Engagement Fellow and co-director of the Sackler Centre, Anil is also a senior fellow of the Canadian Institute for Advanced Research. Anil has also worked with a diverse number of artists who are, through unique interpretations of his research, reaching previously unthought of audiences in novel ways.
3: I'm just trying to find a mind that's awake, real, recognize real, like the rappers say. I can see you have it too. Namaste. Brain cells activate. The hard problem is why does all that add up to consciousness? Why is it like something to be us? Like Inside of each of you right now is a perspective looking out at me right now, that subjectivity. What's it like to be a human baby? Just a blooming, buzzing, confusion.
1: So, just moving on to a really interesting and innovative uh, bit of work that you did with uh, Baba Brinkman on what was referred to, I think, in a review I read on Broadway Baby um, as a TED Talk combined with an hour of hip hop improv um so this was for the rap guide to consciousness so how did that come about and and what was that collaboration like
2: i'm really glad you mentioned that actually because this is one thing that the welcome fellowship explicitly supported baba brinkman's quite a unique figure really he's he's a he's quite amazing i think he i first came across him at an academic conference he's actually married to to a friend of mine in a neuroscientist and at this academic conference at the end of every day he did a five minute stint and he would he would, he would do a wrap-up. He would basically summarise the whole day's academic content in a five-minute wrap, but it was written on that day. And I was just very impressed. I thought it could be awful. But it was really good. It, it was lyrical, funny, scientifically accurate, philosophically insightful. And so we started talking about, well, you know, maybe we can do a, a rap guide to consciousness, a full show. Every
3: few minutes or seconds or less, depending on present context. We live in a time now when the biological brains that we have with their warm wetness are interacting with computers.
2: And it just grew. So there was a premiere in 2017, and then it went to a full run at the Edinburgh Fringe. He took it to various festivals, but it's been in residence at the Soho Playhouse off-Broadway in New York. And there did seem to be an audience for this, for this as well.
1: I was just wondering as well if, through art you can express some of these quite complex ideas in a way that you couldn't, perhaps, through a scientific paper.
2: Yeah, definitely. You can certainly express their, their personal relevance and meaning in a way that, that you can't get at in a scientific paper. The
3: proof is in the pudding. You want to debate? Is improvement a good thing? OK, I'll take the technology option. You can be the human team and I'll be Watson with the implants.
0: Do you, in communicating your work to a wider public, do you consider yourself a storyteller in any way?
2: Not really, but in in some way, yes. In some way, partly because the practice of science is also a kind of storytelling. We're trying to... Science isn't just turning the handle of a machine and data comes out and you just gradually build up a more objective picture of reality. Science is a much more creative process. That bears so many more similarities to the arts than than I think people realise. Uh, but then, in the storytelling in in fiction and in filmmaking means something different. It means okay, what's the narrative that that we're going to produce for for a piece of piece of work? And I found it very interesting working with with uh, with the people on the most unknown, um, but also with. Uh, Playwrights. Um, so I've worked on a, on a drama for the Donmar Warehouse by the playwright Nick Payne and also a radio play called The Sky Is Wider with the playwright Linda Marshall Griffith. So we worked on that play and, and that won the Best Single Drama for the BBC Audio Awards in, I think, 2016, 2017. Which was really also just reassuring that there's not only a public appetite for that, but there's also a critical appreciation for some of this work too, um, which was nice to see. I think having these conversations about these issues. Uh, ...mixing people in this way, it's certainly led me to think about things differently... ...and it seems as though it's made a difference more, more broadly also. One new media format that Annal has been
0: particularly prolific at engaging with... ...is the long-form podcast discussion. The extremely popular Sam Harris podcast, Making Sense... ...featured a discussion with Annal entitled Consciousness and the Self... Lasting for over three hours, this episode is a serious attempt at summarising many of the main concerns of Annals' research, with Sam Harris, who is himself a neuroscientist, expertly teasing out details for a popular yet discerning audience. Sam Harris is um, somewhat of a mini-celebrity in this world, isn't
2: he? That's right. Well, yeah, a major celebrity, I think. And I asked him a few weeks after... Recording that after the re- he released that podcast, and I think it was up to about half a million for a three-hour podcast
0: for one particular episode. Yeah. Wow. So
2: you can talk about six million views for for a TED talk, which is also an extraordinary reach because you know if you write a scientific paper, sure. you'll be lucky if if a hundred people read it. You know, you'd be lucky if ten people read it, to be honest. Um, and you might get citations in in the hundreds if you're if you're very lucky for a, for a paper that has impact. And that doesn't mean that people have actually read the thing. So to reach people in the millions is already kind of crazy. It's a staggering reach, isn't it, by any measure? Yes, to have something that that is three hours, at least a lot of people are prepared to make a start on, whether they actually finish it or not. That's in itself quite an extraordinary thing that the medium of podcasts has has enabled. I don't think anybody would have predicted that that audience would have been there, would have been marketable. What does
0: this mean to your audience? Um to the way that you conduct research, the way that you think about impact and
2: reaching people. It's very motivating uh, because one of the things that I was always worried about uh, early on was this idea and there's sometimes this explicit suggestion that you've got to dumb things down, that you've got to make something really simple and uh, otherwise people won't engage, they won't listen, they won't be interested or they won't be able to, to follow. And you know, there is a space for, for making content as accessible as, as possible, and but it's nice to know that you don't have to do that.
0: When it comes to more mainstream publications, where you're writing um, short editorial pieces, I'm thinking of The Guardian or of any other newspapers that you've appeared in... Um, is there a worry that you're dumbing these subjects down, that you're not doing them justice in their complexity, or or is it important enough um, to feel that you're getting these issues out there into the public domain?
2: There is merit in in the, in the really short form. Eight hundred words is still enough to say one thing. It's certainly not enough to say everything. But if you pick your one point and articulate it clearly, and you have the, the, the tricky thing in writing these things is the tendency that that we as as practicing scientists have of putting caveats and scare quotes around everything it feels uncomfortable to let that go a bit and just say what you think Uh, but you have to do that sometimes when writing these kind of short pieces uh, for the media but if you've got something to say and it's a single point then there's no reason why you can't make that point and it's not going to leave anybody out there fully satisfied, but it might redress some misconceptions. It might pique people's interests and desire to look into it a little bit further. And if you've done that, then I think you've, you've done a service.
1: You've done so much interesting, innovative public engagement work, so many different forums, so many different activities. Um, how have you measured the impact of the work? How do you go about doing that?
2: Not very well, and this is something we discuss at the Impact Day and I've discussed at the Wellcome Trust. There don't seem to be any good solutions because it's the things that, that you can measure and not necessarily the things that, that are, are that meaningful. So you know, going back to the TED Talk again, six million views sounds amazing, but that doesn't really tell you what difference that made to, to anybody's lives or to society or to any communities. It's It's just, yeah, you know, that many people saw something. But what you really want is a way of connecting that number to some change that the content made in some way for some people or for some environment somehow.
1: What do you feel has been the most successful out of your different projects um, in terms of getting your, the message out? Or? You know, that's a very
2: hard one to answer. I mean, it's... it's um, and One of the things to... To emphasise is that that what I've done in public engagement so far has not been part of a grand strategy. A lot of it has depended on serendipity and and fortunate opportunities. Certainly the most impactful things, I would say, have been the, the TED Talk and possibly the Sam Harris podcast now. Our own individual inner universe, our way of being conscious, is just one possible way of being conscious. Our individual selves and worlds are unique to each of us, but they're all grounded in biological mechanisms shared with many other living creatures. I've always thought scientists have a responsibility and a duty uh, to get out of the ivory tower, to take what they uh, are doing, not necessarily just to impart knowledge, but to discuss what they're doing, why it's worth doing, what the implications might be, their doubts about it, what science consists in with the broader public. And then you have these terms like engagement and outreach, which seem to imply something more of a two-way interaction. When does dissemination become more than just the outflow, but something that that builds on input from engagement with other communities? Because as so often in science, from Copernicus, we're not at the center of the universe. To Darwin, we're related to all other creatures. To the present day, with a greater sense of understanding comes a greater sense of wonder and a greater realization that we are part of and not apart from the rest of nature. One of the things I say in the TED talk, and I've also said in other writings, the implications for mental health, and the TED talk starts and ends with this idea that that oblivion is nothing really to be afraid of. I have had anecdotal feedback from people who, who say they've been really personally helped by coming across this, that that for them it's not a scary thing that everything is a hallucination, everything is an illusion, but that their own personal suffering is somehow leavened or or alleviated by this recognition that the way things seem is not necessarily uh, the way they are. When the end of consciousness comes, there's nothing to be afraid of, nothing at all. Thank you.